Yeah, yeah. 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 Martin Jabbar Ali, welcome to VCTV. Hey, peace, bro. Peace. It's been a long time coming. Man, tell me about it. And we're going to get right into it, man. Okay. I've, I've got you here today so you can uh, not only tell us about yourself, but you mm -hmm. can promote your self-wrote, self-published book, The Last to Finish. Yes, the, sir. The Black Boy Experience of Overcoming Adversity. Yes, sir. All right, we can get to some uh, some intro questions, you know, some okay. icebreakers, so the uh, audience can get to know you a little bit. So, uh, your name, Martin Jabbar Ali, is that your birth name? It's not, man. So, Martin Jabbar is, um, but Ali is a name that I changed to um, in 2018. So, I became Muslim, and I've been I've been flirting with the Islamic faith for a while, and I just went full dive into it. And um, I'm a firm believer in the past, mm -hmm. and I'm a firm believer that a good name. Uh, it's better than gold. Uh, that was a quote by Elijah Muhammad one time for the Nation of Islam. Um, and that, that quote just stuck out to me. And, the, and then just knowing like the, the history behind my last name, which was before Johnson, um, writing this book had me time, gave me a lot of opportunity to do a lot of research. I'm a history buff on top of that. And then I just knew to play on my name, Martin Jabbar, that came from my parents. And the name Martin came after Martin Luther King. And then Jabbar came from Kareem Abdul Jabbar. Okay. That was supposed to be my birth name at one point. <laughs> but my dad was like, nah, that's too much. We ain't naming him Kareem Abdul Jabbar. <laughs> we just go with the Jabbar part. But Jabbar also means like the Almighty, right? Okay. Um, and so the last name part is so prevalent because last names is what they branded us by doing slavery. Mm -hmm. And so when you chase back the name Johnson, which came from my dad's side of the family, um, my dad's side of the family migrated to St. Louis during the, uh, the Great Migration, which was around the early 60s when a lot of black families started to migrate and leave the South to come North um, for work. You know, they had a lot, of, a lot of warehouse jobs in the North, and a lot of cities they migrated to were Indianapolis. They came to Detroit. They came to Chicago, and they came to St. Louis and Kansas City. So my dad's side of the family came to St. Louis from Mississippi. But when you trace back St. Louis to Mississippi from my dad's side of the family, which is in Mississippi, um, they live in the close vicinity of a um, a slave a, 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 a slave plantation, mm -hmm. and so I recall my dad saying he recalls seeing his great grandmother who was picking cotton, and so when you think about the last name Johnson, it belonged to some slave owner back in the day, and I just felt like if anything, I had a chance to do within you know what I'm saying having a chance to change the history of my family name. It would be changing your last name, and I chose the name Ali. That may have been a long drawn out answer, but nah, that's, that's kind of where it came from. It definitely makes sense. Yes. Your name is your uh, identity, so you yes. want to choose something that you know got some uh, got some power behind it. Yeah, it got some real meaning, not just right, right. Know. Okay, okay. Uh, so how old are you? I'm 35. Well, 36 now. We look, all look at our ages are old now, but I'm 36 years old. Hey, you look good, me. Take care of very man. well. 36. All right, so I know where you're from, but uh, yeah. tell us where you're from. So I'm from uh, a city called St. Louis, Missouri. Uh, so St. Louis, Missouri is a city that has so much history within it. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm a proud resident of my city. Even though I'm hardly home, I'm always repping, right? Uh, me being in the military. <laughs> who said I'm, that? I don't know who said it, but I took I'm the phrase. I'm home, but always repping. Um, is that Drake? That's Drake. That's Drake. That is Drake. I'm not a huge Drake fan either. Okay. That's another caveat of this, you know, Donda album and the CLB. Yeah. Um, we can get into that too. But um, 
you know, I'm a firm believer that, you know, where you come from, you know, it makes you who you are as a person. And mm-hmm. I think the trials, the tribulations that I went through in my city has made me into the man that I am today. It has shaped me, molded me, gave me culture and the tradition. But uh, I'm from the great city of St. Louis. Yeah. Got you. Okay, okay. All right, so let's get to the book. Let's get into it. The last yeah, to finish. Let's do it. The, bl- uh, the Black Boy Experience of Overcoming Adversity. In your own words, I want you to describe the book briefly to someone who hasn't had the chance to read it yet. So let's start with the title first, man. This book is uh, called The Last to Finish. And then the subtitle is The Black Boy Experience of Overcoming Adversity. Mm-hmm. That's heavy within itself, like Definitely. overcoming adversity. And then I'm, 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 I'm you know, focusing on the black boy on purpose. It's not to negate the black female out of the equation, not at all. But I wanted to give a perspective on me saying that I'm the last to finish. So what happened is, specifically, uh, I'm the youngest out of six kids. And I felt like I was born at a time in, in, in the history of the world to where my parents didn't really get a time, get a chance and a time to really uh, mold me and shape me as well as I did with my other brothers and siblings, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, sisters, sisters and brothers. And so I felt like because of that, I was the last to finish. But that's a play on words because throughout my entire life, I have felt that way. Um, I was an avid basketball player and I was really good. But it took a while for the coaches to recognize that. It took a while for the guys in my block to recognize that. So once again, I was the last to finish. Uh, I'm the youngest out of six. I was the last kid to come out of there. Um, Within my time in the military, I have had a lot of great experiences, right? But a lot of leaders... Um, for whatever reason, you know, they, they, they didn't really depend on me in the beginning, but then after a while, they was just like, yo, you know, back then I was starring Johnson or, or, or private Johnson and they just, you know, king to me after a while. And so I feel like I'm like a jump start or a warm up period. You know, I'm always not there at the beginning, but like during the middle and the end, you like, you know, you need me. And I'm a pivotal point of like how you're going to have an end state or a vision. And so, like, uh, because of that, throughout my entire life, my experiences throughout where I've been through life and what I talk about in the book, um, I have felt like I was the last to finish. And I feel like the black boys in America, in our society, how it has shaped us, how it has molded us, um, speaking generally, I think we all can feel like at some point in time in our lives, we can feel as if we were the last to finish. Um, and it's not, not to say that, you know, we are last place or we're not you know, uh, worthy of, of being worthy of having anything good to happen to us. I just feel like some point in time, you can look at the George Floyd throughout the history of time, how the black man is, is massively incarcerated through through the jail system, uh, the school systems. You know, we look at the academia world, how they big up the black woman and not so much the black man. So I feel as if like at some point in time, the black boy can experience a time and place and in, in, in part in their life to where they felt like that was the last to finish. And so that was... Um, the envision on why I use that as the title, because it can go into so many avenues of, of how you can approach it. But for me, um, I felt like, and I still feel like, a lot of times I am the last to finish. Okay. Yeah. On page fourteen, right? Let's get into the book now. Yes. On page fourteen, you said I was born the crack era, and in this timeline. And this timeline hit my family hard, like it did many of the other families. Do you think the crack? epidemic the crack era hit the african-american community harder or affected us in a more long-term state than slavery 
It's a it's a great question, bro. Um, before I answer, let me just get some context behind um, what I meant behind that question. And so, uh, I'm the youngest out of six. I was born in 1985. Mm-hmm. Let's think for a moment, bro. 1985 was when the crack epidemic really, really, really started to hit urban neighborhoods across America. We're talking about cities like New Orleans, D.C., Chicago. You know, every, every big city you can name got hit with this pandemic. Um, and I was born in the, in the middle of it. And on, on top of that, just, just to add a little bit more detail to it, like my mother was hooked on crack cocaine. But it wasn't a bad addiction back then because everybody was doing it. It was like the best high in the world, you know, if you ask somebody. But the high doesn't last long. But I was born in that era. Um, And I feel like the question that you're asking me is that um, did the, the crack cocaine era do more damage to the black family than slavery did? It's a it's a heavy question. I would I would say you know it's kind of on a scale of one to ten. I would say um, slavery done a, a number on us, definitely right. Definitely. But I think the crack era on how it specifically came into the black neighborhood, it wouldn't have happened without slavery happening first. Mm-hmm. And so I think when you look at like um, look at the role of boxing, right? Um, a boxer uses the jab as like um, a, a way to distract you, right? I think that's what slavery was. It was a distraction for a bigger purpose behind it, right? Of course, we know what slavery did to us. We were able to, as black people, come out of slavery, not to be on top, but we were able to be resilient Mm -hmm. throughout the whole, like the people that made it on that boat that left Africa to come into the United States and the different ports where it came to. You from Virginia, you know, so it ported in Virginia and South Carolina, you know, so... Um, the ones that made it across those, those the, 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 that shore of water and those uh, those detrimental moments, man, those people are resilient. You know, the people that made it out of the crack era, those people are resilient. You know, the people that, that are able to hear today to tell these stories about the crack era, you know, who have firsthand experience, it, it's, 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 it's amazing to see we as black people what we can be put through and still come out on, come out on, on top with. You look at slavery, they stripped us of everything. We didn't even know our names. We couldn't read. Yeah. We couldn't read, but we couldn't write. You know, we could they were branding us. Right. You know, hence the reason why you asked that perfect question in the beginning about my name. That's like the reason why I changed my name because of slavery. Like Johnson is not an African name by far, and no chance, right? And so they stripped us of our whole entire identity. They gave us our religion, a religion to believe in, and to this day forward, we still believe in it. Not to say that it's the bad thing uh, for the for the world to believe in Christianity or Islam, um, but we wanted something to believe in so bad. Mm-hmm. We wanted something to believe in so bad, bro. Is that um, we we took on the identity of, of things that we don't really understand, right? And I think when the crack cocaine era hit. We didn't really understand it. Every brother in the 80s and the 90s who can get their hand on crack cocaine to sell it was selling it. Because they made so much money off of it. They made so much money off of it. Um, But to preface the point, I didn't live during the slavery era. I lived during the crack era. I don't don't think you can equate the two to be on the same paradigm. um, Because we both know there are different situations. Slavery lasted 400 years. So many generations went through it. We even got to the Jim Crow era, where we're still going through it today with, with police brutality and racial profiling. Mm-hmm. Um, 
The crack cocaine era hit me personally. I got first-hand experience with the crack era. It sucks, bro, because I think that we're still experiencing it. Crack hasn't went away. Right. You know, heroin is still here. Heroin was a big part of our, our, our culture back then, too, as, as a people. Uh, the opioid epidemic, you know, the pill epidemic. Yep. And so uh, I think it just transitioned to having this addiction to being prone to believing that we needed something inside our bodies to, to, to just to function day to day. Um, I watched my mother and my parents go through it. I watched my uncles go through it. I watched my homeboy down the block go through it. Uh, mother and parents go through it, you know. And so I seen how it ravaged the black communities. Um, it's, 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 it's crazy because I'm a history buff on top of that. And so to answer the question specifically, to answer the question, the one out of the two, uh, I would have to say the crack era, okay. you know, because I lived through it. Do I think someone would say something different in their perspective who who may have had a slight experience with slavery? Yeah, they'll have a different approach. They would they would tell you something different. Not to negate to say that they're wrong, not at all. Right. I think that my experience of what I went through, what I was talking about in the book, um, definitely played into what made me as the person today and, and, and exposed me to what I, a lot a lot of what I seen. It's kind of hard to put it into words sometimes because you had to be there to see it, right. you know. Um, but I, I, I literally watched my mother go from being the best mother in the world to being addicted, to going to rehab, to not being able to beat rehab, to her, her losing her kids, you know. So she went through so many levels of destruction and as a, um, you know, as a as a catalyst and and as a uh, as a child, we went through it too, mm-hmm. because that's our mother. We had nowhere else to go, and so if it went if it if it hit her first, we were like collateral damage. Yeah, you know, and so because of that collateral damage, that exposure to the crack cocaine era, you know, um, it made me it made me be a leader. I can say that. Cause I could have easily been a follower and fell into the footsteps of everybody around me who had their hands in like dibbling and right. dabbling to anything illegal. Um, so I think I would have to say the crack era, bro. Okay, okay. Yeah. You know, I wasn't around. You know, obviously during yeah. you know the crack epidemic, and uh, you know one of the things that is, is still it's like mind boggling to me that you know that we sold this to each other. Yes. You know, it's it, it, it's it's kind of like self genocide. It like, was in a way. And then, like, we wanted to get money so bad, like, mm-hmm. even though we knew what this was going to do. After a while, we knew what was going to do. Yeah. And we still continue to give it to, you know, our family members, you know, right. our own community. You know? Right. That part is, it still, it still baffles me to this day. But, um, okay, so I noticed throughout the book, you capitalized the B in black. Every time you said um, black boy or yeah. black this or... Yeah. My black bodies, yeah. Or, you know, you 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 capitalized the B. Was that intentional, and uh, why did you do that? I think it's very intentional, man. A lot of things in the book is very intentional. Um, I wanted to put pressure on the reader, and I think depending on who reads the book, they may they may not have caught that 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 little play on words or me capitalizing the B on purpose. Um, I wanted to to really accentuate and hone in on the idea that the black experience is not something to be ashamed of, that the black experience is something to be proud of. Um, and I'm telling my story from a standpoint that were, there was some strife, there was uh, some backlash, there were some hard times, but at the end of the day, 
you had a chance to be resilient. Mm-hmm. And so that capital B is kind of like capitalizes and, 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 and you know, kind of solidifies the, the moment of, of saying like black is beautiful, you know. Um, and so that was kind of the reason why. But it's, it's a great moment that you caught that, bro. Because I think a lot of readers, depending on who the reader is, right. they may not have caught that. They may have may, they may just look at it as like a... Like an error. Yeah, or, or just a, <laughs> a, a play on English um, dichotomy of just writing, you know. Yeah, no, I, I, I definitely peeped that. I peeped yeah. it maybe after the first or two affirmations. I was like... Yeah. I said, oh, I said, oh he's, he's capitalizing all the Bs. I Affirmations, said, bro. That's a whole different part of the book. That's, a, that's I'm, my favorite part. I'm yeah. definitely going to get to that at some yeah. point. For sure. Uh, so how long did it take you to write this book? So I started writing this book, and um, I would say my entire life, but the, the, the actual writing process was 2017, going into 2018. Mm-hmm. And then I finally finished the book um, in 2019, and then I went ahead and published it um, in 2020. So it took about two and a half years, bro, to write this, just trying to get the right tone, the right structure, the right storyline. Uh, making sure the people who I put into the book were okay with being exposed to the world. Right. Um, and so it took about two and a half years. Yeah. Okay. Did you write this book 100% yourself? Cause I know some authors, they have uh, like like assist, yeah. uh, uh, like like writers who like write, not write it for them, but like put it together for them. Yeah. Or they have like, you know, um, co-authors. Yeah. So, about so the book is, is, is definitely 110% done by me. Um, I did hire an editor at the end just to, proof, just to proofread the book because I read the book 110 times and I still found like three or four errors, right? So shout out to the errors that made it through the proofreadings. Because um, there's a couple of them <laughs> It's a there. couple of them, yeah. But, um, you know, it's a couple of times where I spelled a couple words wrong and it's simple words, but I read the book so many times, bro. But it, it's some of the best books I have ever read by J- James Baldwin, you know, Marshall Faulkner. Um Tony Morrison, you know, mm-hmm. Walter Dean Myers, you find small errors in them. And so, um, but, you know, long story short, bro, the book was 110% written by me. And I took pride in that part of the process. Right. Yeah. Who, um, not who, how did you find your editor? Um. So, you don't got a name, it's, it's, it's weird but, how I, uh, I went about the book process and editing it and, and, and it book, the book being self-published. Uh-huh. Um, I researched and I, and I went through Pfeiffer. And um, I found a freelance um, proofreader, and it was inex- it was it was a, it was pretty inexpensive, but not not too much expensive. Um, but I found somebody I wanted a black editor, um, yeah. purposely because I didn't want somebody to read the words and not get the right nuance of <laughs> right. what I'm trying to say and how I'm trying to convey it. Mm. Because there's certain parts in the book to where it speaks as if you're a black person, and I made it that way on purpose. I didn't change it out. And I felt as if a white author or a white proofreader may try to, you know, edit those words out and make them more um, appropriate in, in, in the grammar of, of, of English. Mm-hmm. Um, so I wanted to avoid that. And purposely, I chose a black editor. But I went through Pfeiffer. Who published this book? The book is published by me. So how did you go about the process of getting the book material yeah. uh picking out the font um yeah. you know and actually getting it to the process of it's a hard copy in your hand yeah so that's pretty cool you say that right this is the hardback copy of the book right here and then this is the paperback copy of the book and so i had both versions um what i did was bro i took the whole nipsey hustle play on it and i wanted to 110 percent self-publish the book from 
<clears throat> the marketing of it, the website of it, the process of buying the book, to me packaging the book up and shipping it off. And so what I did was um, I, I found, so first off, the book cover, I designed it, right? But I was like, how can I get somebody to make the book cover for me? Mm-hmm. Let me just research a freelance person that does, you know, book formatting and book book covers. I found somebody that was um, in a different country. I believe the brother or sister was in the Philippines, right? And they designed <clears throat> the cover of the book for me after I made how I wanted to look, right? So after I designed it, I needed someone to make it for me. Right. And so I found someone to freelance it. They made it for me. And, and at one point, the cover looked totally different than this, mm-hmm. right? But the book cover is me and my brother as, as, like, as I feel as if this is one of the good times in our lives before foster care happened, before the crack epidemic happened, before my mom and dad really went off onto their, their paths of destruction, as, as I like to call it. Um, and so, as you can see, the book picture is like this pastel colors. So I wanted to keep that same theme going. So I found a freelance author that could do the design for me. I'd done that part. The second part was I wanted to make the book into a brand. And so I made an LLC. I trademarked the name. I copyrighted the book. And then um, I made an LLC for it. And so, bam, I I formed a business out of the book. I made merch out of it. But then I was like, how am I going to produce the book? I'm in Hawaii. A A lot of companies here in Hawaii didn't want to publish the book, bro. They didn't want to make the book for me for a decent price. Mm. And so um, I found a company that was in Ohio that would sell me the books wholesale. So they took the formatting so process. So what do you mean by sell you the books wholesale? So after I got the cover done and I got someone to format the book, uh-huh. the book was in a PDF format. right? Okay. I, knew, I knew the size that I wanted for the book. And I was like, now what I need is somebody to print the books for me. And then I'm going to sell them myself. Yeah. And so... I went. That was the hardest part of the process of getting the book out because I, I wanted to put it on Amazon, but then I was like, um, that wouldn't really make it 100% self-published. Right. Like I was really keen on that part of it. And so I finally found a company that was in Ohio that was willing to wholesale me the books um, for a decent amount of price so where I can get the books here, I can package the, book up, package the books up and ship them. And so what I really did was I found a middleman, a plug. Okay. In so many words, okay. um, after the hard work was done, and that's how I did the book. You say you found a middleman a plug to do what exactly? So all they did was all they do for me is they they take the book in the PDF format that I give them, mm-hmm. and they make the book for me. Okay. So they have a whole warehouse to where they publish the books for me. They ship them to me, and then once I get the books, and then I'm the person that's, that's packaging the books up that are signing each book, each copy, um, each T-shirt, and then putting them into the mailbox for you. Can you say who they are? Yeah, um, it's a company called 48 Hour Books. Okay. So 48 Hour Books, they are located in Ohio, and um, they, they're a company behind their name. Within 48 hours, you, they ship books. the books to you, okay. you know? How big was your first shipment of books? Uh, I ordered 500 copies. Okay. Yeah, I ordered 500 copies. So combined of, I'm going to just say, of the 48 Hour uh, Book shipping yeah. in that cost yeah the the cost to uh for the uh, for the freelance um yeah. artist to do your cover mm-hmm. around how much did the first shipment to get your book 
actually in your hands, how much did that cost altogether? So the books within itself was like seventeen hundred, mm-hmm. and then the process of getting the book uh, formatted to ebook. The book is an ebook format too, right? Yeah. So getting the ebook file, um, getting the book design, getting it formatted, um, that part, and getting it, and, and getting it edited was all together. I would say, like roughly, another another eleven hundred ish. So. I'm almost three grand in the hole, right? But the play on words on this, right, is that this is when the pandemic hit, mm-hmm. when I started paying for everything. The LLC, we were getting stimulus checks. Fortunate for me, I was still working during the pandemic. A lot right. of families needed that money, mm-hmm. but the money for me was like free money. Right. And so all the funding for the LLC, the trademark, the proofreading process, Stimmies? like the, the STEMI checks, bro. Okay. So okay. I spent the government checks. I left my money in my, to my savings account, and I used everything money bag money bag Joe gave us. Okay. And, uh, bro, <laughs> I made a business out of it. That's dope. That's yeah. dope. Uh, three bands, uh, three bands roughly to to self publish. Yep. And get five hundred books and the ebook. Yep. And the merch. And the merch. The heat press machine, all of that. So yeah. About three bands. All yep. right. Hope everybody listening. Like you wanna, you know, if you wanna, you know, self publish a book, I'm getting. Oh, uh, me and uh. Me and uh, you know, Mr. Ali, we yeah. giving you the you know, give you the blueprint. Yeah, I, right honestly, here. man, um, you know, I, I feel as if, man, it's 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 important for us to own something, right? And I I, I mentioned Nipsey earlier, yeah, where he was talking about owning your masters, you know, what I'm saying doing things 100% independent, but the the marathon continues. Um, I had that same approach with the book, and I'm not against any author that went to Amazon, any author that goes to anybody to publish their book. I'm not against that. No, exactly. Um, right. I just wanted to do it my way. Right. I made a website out of it, bro. And what it did was it taught me business. You know, when you go to the website and look at it, like, it's, it's so professional. It gives the customer a chance to say, yeah, I feel as if my money is not going to be taken. This guy did an amazing job with the website, with the process, with the whole buying experience. And they're getting a quality book, bro. And yeah. so uh, I did it my way, bro, and it worked out for me perfectly. Right. And see... I do things like this, right, yeah. to, to show people that, you know, of course you can go through Amazon, go through yeah. a big business, a corporation right. to you know, get your book published or whatever. Right. But um, it's good to know that you can do it yourself. You got to believe in you, and man. And it can come out looking just as every other book in Barnes & Noble. Look. Yeah, man. You put this book next to any book in Barnes & Noble, we're going to be like, I don't, I don't see a difference. It's, it's, it's going to look it's, just it's, like. It, it, only thing I can see difference is that maybe the author is known. That's it. That's it. Outside of that, bro, is 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 no comparison. Exactly. According to pages sixteen and seventeen, you okay. said, referring to your childhood, I knew I could no longer be a prisoner of my own thoughts. You continue to say on page seventeen that you eventually became emotionless, and that you and that has affected you and how you display your softer side to your wife and to your son. So, how does one get to such a state of coldness and you know emotionlessness at such a young age it's weird bro um before i answer the question real really really quick so an ex-girlfriend from like my sophomore because my my wife and i are high school sweethearts right Mm -hmm. so before her and i started dating in high school i dated this female and the relationship didn't last long but it was kind of weird but she bought a copy of the book right and she was reading it and she shot me a dm and she prefaced that same part of the book she was just like Hmm. I always tried to figure out, like, why you were so, like, emotionless. Like, you didn't want to hold my hand as a kid. 
And like is it, it was it was weird, but like it made sense to her at the moment when she read the book and she was like, Okay, now I understand what he was going through because a lot of people who grew up with me didn't know what I was going through. Mm. You know, so it's it's crazy because when you read the book, you people people who read the book and know me be like, I had no idea right. what he was going through. Um, but I think that that the reason behind me being so cold, bro, it was the part to where we went through foster care, and we had a social worker who didn't care less, who, who didn't care, really care about us. But my my academic role and my degrees on and what I study right now, I know that the social workers have a heavy caseload, so it's hard for them to put the emotions into the business. So. I didn't understand that part of it. I just saw a professional who supposed to have been helping us as kids not really doing 100% of his job. Mm-hmm. you know. And so within that, my mom and my dad never really gave me hugs, never really told me they loved me. And so as a kid growing up, you wanted that, you wanted that, uh, you know, those hugs, that, that, that emotional parts of your parents to come through. And so, um, you know, I never got a hug from my dad. He showed his love in, in, in a weird way. Um, and I kind of talk about that towards the end of the book when I gave a chapter about my dad. Yeah, about your uh, your job, right? Yeah. yeah. And so um, he had this 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 mysterious way of showing his 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 love and admiration for his kids. And so for me, like I wanted that, I, I needed that, and especially from my mom. And I never got it, and so it made me cold, bro. Um, as 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 a kid, and we become adults, we end up reverting back to our parents' behaviors and what they do, right? My wife and I, we were high school sweethearts, right? We graduated high school, went and got our own apartments. And as much as I hated, you know what I'm saying, my parents' ways and upbringing and how they structured our upbringing, um, it kind of molded me who I am as an adult. We got our first apartment, and um, my wife was making the same dinner that her mom made for her as a kid, right? She didn't know no better. She just knew how to cook what her mom showed her showed her how to cook, right? Hey, look, real quick, yeah. it's, it's crazy. I was talking to uh, my friend last night. Yeah. Last night, I made hamburger helper. Yeah. Beef stroganoff. Mm-hmm. And my mom used to make that for me it's all the crazy, time. It's crazy, bro. And I went to Target, yeah. and that's what I got. It's crazy, it's bro. Crazy. Subconsciously, we don't really understand that. Yep. So subconsciously, my feelings and how I operate within my emotions mm-hmm. was was uh, you know prying into my personal life as an adult i didn't i didn't, I didn't even recognize it until so i became married and had a kid of my own and my wife was just like yo why you don't want to hold my hand and i'm just like my dad never held my hand why you don't never give me hugs tell me you love me i never heard that as a kid right you know so i'm i'm trying to reprogram on how i operate as an adult and now i'm 36 years old bro with a wife who's loved me for who i am but she sees the parallel within it, right? That connection. And so, like, the connection with her making the food that her mom made for us as 18-year-olds. Because mm-hmm. we didn't have a menu. We didn't know what to cook. <laughs> and so, like, uh, it's the same the same situation. Right. And so, she didn't really understand it. And then when I put it into that context, she's like, oh, now I get it. And so, uh, that's, that's the reason why, bro. Okay. Yeah. Have you taken the steps to address that issue and like show more emotion and you know be more softer with your family? I have, man. Um, you know, I recently started going to therapy because of that, man. I didn't recognize the importance of therapy until I got finished with the book and I was writing the book, and I, I knew how it made me feel when I was writing it, and it really hit me, bro, when um my mom read the book before I published it, and it hit her so hard. Because she never knew what I was experiencing. Mm-hmm. 
And when I was going through it as a kid, because we never talked about it. A lot of black families don't have these kind of conversations, right? No. A lot of black families don't have these conversations. The hard conversations where we can reflect back and assess some accountability, yeah. we don't do that in the black family. No. We kind of just brush things over and keep it moving. Yeah. And we kind of done that for so many years, so my mom kind of forgot about it. You know what I'm saying? She never thought about addressing how I may have felt or how it made me feel. And so when she finally read the book, it, it brought back a lot of emotions to where it hurt her to her core. Mm-hmm. And she was like, Martin, don't don't put this book out to the world to read because they're going to read about my bad times and I'm not that person no more. And I'm like, Mom, that's the best place for us to put. The, that's the best reason why for us to put the book out, yeah. because it's a transformation. It can show you to where you were and where you are now, you know. And so um, she finally blessed off on it. But, man, it has been a long road, bro. And it took this book. For me to even understand that I needed therapy, you know, and yeah. so uh, therapy has, has taught me a lot. Um, mental health, you know, self empowerment is what it ha- is, 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 is what it has given me, and so uh, I can thank the book for that, bro. Honestly, you know. Okay. Yeah. Explain what what the art of observation is and how it relates to you, because you mentioned it in the book. The art of observation, bro. I'm very observant from a young age. I, I think I said that. Yeah. Um, I can kind of, I, I, I can low key, you know, detect somebody who has a genuine feel as if they want to help me, and who really don't. Mm-hmm. Who's who's really there behind a hidden a hidden motive or a hidden agenda. Um, and because of that, you know, I, I've I've had this 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 mind detection to where I can feel those spiny senses from somebody who's not genuine, who's not really there for a sincere purpose. Um. Because of that, I have modeled my life to be somebody who somebody can always count on, a man of my word. A lot of people say a lot of things in this world, right? Well, yeah, bro, I got your back. And, it, you know, when you actually need them to have your back, they're not really there for you. Right. And so there's not really much action behind the words. And so with me being very observant from a young age, um, I've, been, I've been able to peep and have an end game on, like, do's and don'ts. Should I put myself in this situation? Should I not put myself in this situation? And um, I think, I think my exposure to my upbringing, like I wouldn't change what I went through for the life of me. I wouldn't change not one thing that I went through, um, because it has it has trained me to have this eye to have a moment to be like, I can really understand what street smarts is, right? Yeah. Like having street smarts. Uh, I had a homeboy named Lil Greg. Yo, shout out to Greg, um, a dude in my hood, like. Great homeboy to this day. We're still homies, right? But he wasn't sheltered, but he was sheltered. But he was like hella, hella book smart, but he had no street sense, right? Mm-hmm. And so, like, we was always talking about him in the hood. Like, bro, one for us, we, we, you, you'll be getting beat up and bullied all the time because you don't understand nothing that goes on around the hood. And I think it's a, it's a, it's a premise to where um, the hood would expose you to be observant. You can understand moments to where it's time to get in the house, yeah. to where this don't feel good. Like, you know. It'll force you to. It will force you to. It really yeah. would, especially during the gang culture. Uh, and then in this day and age to where, like, police brutality and their brutality is, like, killing us. Yeah. Not just slapping us around no more. They putting bullets in us. And so um, I think that, 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 that me being observant is, is, is um, something that a lot of us have these days. It's just like, it's, we may not recognize it. But I felt the need in the book to point that out for a reason because the book is made for black boys. So when they start reading, they can be like, well, I can identify with that, too, Mm -hmm. because I'm very observant as well. And so that was the reason why.
Okay. So I noticed a lot in the book that yeah. you use a lot of army lingo like foxhole yeah. or you, I think you may have said foul a couple yeah. times. Yeah. Uh, but like just it was it was it was a conscious theme throughout the album. I mean, it was not, not the album, but the but the book uh-huh. that you use army lingo was that intentional? It was, man. <laughs> uh, I'm a soldier, right? We we got 15 years in the army right now. I just hit my 15 year mark. God bless. Yeah, man. But I think it's guerrilla warfare attack. This is right. I think. The, the military science behind how we're structured is what a lot of gangs use. It's what a lot of a lot of organizations use. They use the rank structure. There's there's a high man on the totem pole. There's a low man on the totem pole who does a lot of grunt work. And so uh, it was a play on words for me to incorporate my hmm. my time in the military as me, um, you know, being a veteran of, of, of being a five time veteran of being in Iraq three times, Afghanistan and Kuwait, um, and then me. Having this uh, this hood mentality that was structured behind the premise of like a gang culture, which when within itself had the same premise in military science of like you know foul um, using squad using foxhole. Yeah. Um, it was a play on words, and it just made the reader think. But then once you get to the second to last chapter, I think it kind of all makes it full circle. Full circle. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay, uh, page 33, paragraph 2, you said, I learned how many government systems that are involved in giving assistance to black families sometimes had this hidden fine print to disassociate the fathers from being in the lives of their children. Yeah. Explain to us what that means exactly. For sure, bro. Um, a lot of us grew up on Section 8 or low-income housing. And because of that, the black woman, you rarely ever see a black man getting food stamps, right? Or welfare checks. It's, always the it's usually the black woman, right? Yeah. And so I think it was purposely designed on purpose. Um, distinctly, I recall when my mom left rehab and got us back into her custody, we had a Section 8 house on the north side of St. Louis. And um, I recall periodically, unannounced, the caseworker would come by and just pop in. And check on the house and do an inspection. And she will ask the kids, like, hey, does any man live here? Does your dad live here? Is he coming by here a lot? And my mom will always coach us to be like, hey, when the caseworker come and she asks you, have your dad been over here? Just tell her, no, you ain't seen your dad in months. You know? And what the premise was behind that, bro, these government fine print contracts that they give to these black women, it was to take the black man out of the household. Encourage it. It would it would make them. Yeah. It will force them because if you have the black man inside the household, you're liable to lose your house. Nobody wants to be homeless. Right. So if the father did want to be home, because we have this notion to where, you know, we don't the black father is is not existing in the black family. Yeah. There's plenty of black fathers out there. Mm-hmm. I'm one of them. My dad is one. They want to be there, right? But by design, the system has programmed the black woman to think that they don't need the black man sometimes. They look at the government going to take. They care look of for them. the government, <laughs> and then they like, well, I'm, I'm I'm independent. I don't need you for nothing. Yeah. So now the black man is not needed in the household. Mm-hmm. But now what happens is that the black woman is stuck with raising these kids by herself. A black woman can't raise a black boy how to be a man in the hood. She can't. She can't. And so. Um, because of that, bro, I distinctly recall the case we were coming by unexpectedly doing inspections on the house, you know, interrogating us, not really asking questions, really interrogating the kids mm-hmm. and asking us, have your father been here? Mm. The first thing a kid want to do is say, yeah, my daddy was here the other day. He bought me some groceries. He bought me toys. Yeah. He bought me these shoes I got on. 
but I couldn't say that, you know? And so um, it's unfortunate, bro. It's unfortunate. I can go into more deeper on that, but maybe we can get back to it in a, in a later question. Okay. Yeah. At the bottom of page 41, you refer to this Chinese family owning businesses and also being worried about people stealing from them. Yeah. You said it was odd to me that they served a community of people that they were scared of. Uh, paint the picture for me yeah. as a young kid noticing this Chinese family in the hood. Yeah. You know, making money off of the same right. people that they are scared of and that they think are going to steal from them. Bro, it's crazy, right? Because I had that same experience as a kid, too. So but, they, you know. they, own, they own the convenience We call them convenience stores. It's like a little... A walk-in, mom and pop store, you can buy, like, your, your soda and all that. Mm-hmm. So, they own a convenience store, and connected to the convenience store was a Chinese restaurant. In the hood, right? What do we love? Chicken wings and french fries. <laughs> hey, look, right? And fried rice. That, uh, lemonade to come in that, yeah. that, that big jar. And so, like, St. Louis is known for our Chinese food. It's, it's, no, it's different than every other city. If you ever go, bro, just try, you know, a, 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 a St. Paul sandwich or egg fuyang with a half of the chicken fried rice. It's, it's different when you get it in St. Louis. But... The point what I'm trying to make was that I recall me going, we, this Chinese neighborhood, this Chinese family knew the whole entire neighborhood, bro. Mm-hmm. From your little sister to your brother to your mother. We all went there to buy our food. You know, it was the best. We live in food deserts. It was no us going to the market and buying fresh fruit. We didn't have that. Yeah. You know, we didn't, we didn't have a grocery store. No longer, no, nowhere close to us. Dang. So the best thing we were eating is, is, is Chinese food, you know, French fries and fried chicken, you know. <laughs> and so uh, for, the, for this Chinese family to, to understand that they can take the black dollar mm-hmm. and not circulate it back into the... I've never known for that Chinese family to come and say, hey, we're going to do a backpack drive for the school year right. since y'all spend so much money with us. You know, they we're going we're gonna to do a giveaway to, to the kids in the neighborhood. They've never done nothing, right? No. But when you go inside there to buy your food, it's a bulletproof glass between... <laughs> You know, Miss Ho, the bulletproof glass, and it's me yeah. talking through a makeshift hole, yelling my order through it. You know, that was the experience I had. They never shook our hands. They just took our money, gave us the food, and they had a bulletproof glass up, right? Yeah. And they knew that they had to shut down the shop, you know, by a certain time because they felt as if they couldn't trust us when it, when, it went, when it got dark outside. And so it was a play on racism. You know, discrimination and prejudice, mm-hmm. you know, all, all three in one, you know what I'm saying? Within the black family, um, we, we, we experienced that, you know? And I felt like, well, you can take our money, take but you don't want to do nothing for us, you know? Yeah. You could not trust us. Or you could take our money and you can openly, you know, you, you know, you know take our money. Right. But... You still look at us like we're you know, second class. Bro, they wouldn't hire a black person in the hood to do anything. I peeped that in my, in my own you neighborhood, know? too. I said, yo, it's all Chinese. And it's all, it's, and it'd and it be the family. Yeah. It'd be the, the daughter, the it's son. It's generational wealth for them, bro. Because yep. I know I watched the grandmother get old, and then she passed the business down to the, to the nephew or to the son. Mm-hmm. He took over the register. He, he's in the back cooking, you know. But they never identified to acknowledge us as being respected in the community, bro. And so uh, that's why I say it's a play on racism, discrimination, and prejudice. I definitely get that. Yeah. Um, real quick, it's a spot. Well, it used to be a spot. Yeah. In um, MacArthur Mall, you know, back where I grew up at. Uh-huh. And this is where I first peeped it out. We all peeped it out. Yeah. 
at, at MacArthur Mall, it was this clothing store named Z Spot. Okay, okay. It was uh, either Korean or like Chinese owned. Yeah. It was right below <laughs> Pusha T's. Uh, Pusha T's uh, 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 clothing store cream. Okay, okay. And the play Z Spot, it's so it's so uh, throwback jerseys. Gotcha. Uh, whole bunch of street, urban streetwear. Urban streetwear, yeah, right? Yeah. But as soon as you walk in, looking around, you got somebody following you. Yeah. They got cameras all over the place. Right. Uh, if you in there too long, you ain't bought nothing. They gonna ask you. Right. Uh, are you gonna buy something? Yeah. But it's just real hostile. Yeah. And it wasn't until because I was maybe thirteen. You right. Know, I'm just trying to get something hot. Exactly, I, exactly. And then it, I was like, yo, I asked my boy, I said, yo, every time we go in there, these people are hostile to us. Yeah. He's a brother, he's a brother, he's a brother, thinking we're stealing. Yeah. <laughs> they think we're going there still. And ever since then, you know, I just started to, it, it opened my eyes to, you yeah. know, what you were just saying, you know, the prejudice, the racism. A whole new perspective on life, bro. Whole new perspective. Yeah. At the bottom of page 41, you were, oh, same question. My yeah, bad. Yeah, it's all good. Uh,. <clears throat> All right, so page 45 to 46. <laughs> okay, 45. You've really read the book, bro. Let's get it. Oh, I'm in 45 it. 45 through 46. 45 through 46. Yeah. Uh, if you wouldn't mind, you know, people, if, you, if, if you're watching this, I still want you to read the book. Yeah. Because it's even more great when you actually read the real yeah, words. Yeah, I agree. But I want you to briefly give the story of the fight at the pool hall. <laughs> Oh my goodness, bro! <laughs> I think I texted you as soon as I read it. Yeah. I texted you. I was like, "Yo, this is wild." So that was the uh, that was the two day experience, right? Uh, so yes, it happened. It happened the day prior to that. Yeah, can you, can y'all. So see, this is yeah. the play on to the last question. So that Chinese restaurant is where it started at. Oh yeah. yeah so we yeah. walked from. So this is when the gang culture was like heavy in my neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Heavy. And my on my block specifically, bro, in, in like a ten block radius of where I lived at, you either were blue and gray, mm-hmm. you either were blue and yellow, or a neutral color. You didn't wear blue and orange, and you didn't wear red, right? Yep. Blue and orange was a, a, a was a rival game that we didn't like. I was not a game member, bro, mm-hmm. but I was affiliated with them because of where I grew up at. Yeah. Um, guilty by association in so many words and peer pressure, right? Mm-hmm. And so like uh. The fight at the pool hall happened because the day prior, me and my homeboys walked to that same Chinese spot to get some food at nighttime, right? We in there ordering our food. And then while we in there ordering our food, some females from a rival neighborhood came in who were blue and orange, and they're ordering food. Yep. So my homeboy D, Lil D, is like talking back and forth with these females, right? Mm-hmm. Having an exchange about they hood versus our hood, but it's all in friendly conversation. <laughs> So he dissing their hood, the girls dissing our hood, we get our food, we dip out, we, we leave our separate ways, right? Mm-hmm. They go back to their neighborhood, we go back to our neighborhood. Well, before that, before that, yeah. before that, you had told D to chill out. I told him to chill out. You told him to chill out. Once again, bro, it's a play on the cushions, right? I'm very observant. I'm like, bro, just... You're not even in the gang neither, bro. Yeah, he like, talking about your guys is not like that. Yeah. And she like, all right, we're going to see. <laughs> so she she threatening us, right? But it's yeah. a soft threat. Like, it's play on words. It's female. Right. So it's, right. we kids. Mm-hmm. We're kids. And so I'm telling Luddy, like, bro, like, stop, 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 stop selling wolf tickets, bro. You're not even, you're not even in the gang. Mm-hmm. We just happen to live on their block to where the gang, you know what I'm saying, be at. So we get our food that night. We head back to our hood. That group of females, they head back to their hood. The next day, bro, the very next day, uh, me and Lil D, little brother Darnell, we inside my house, and we decide to walk to the flea market, right? Mm-hmm. 
So we leave my hood, walk to the flea market, which is like right next door to the Chinese spot, right? And it's a pool hall next to it. And um, what happened was the <laughs> next day is me, me and it's me and Lil D, Lil Brother Darnell, we're in this spot buying some snacks. Who do we see? We see that same group of females, yep. but now it's these females with a clique of dudes. <laughs> it's I, I can count ten to twelve of them, right? And I'm just knowing it's gonna be a bad day for you us. You know what time it is. <laughs> They spot us, right? They spot me. I'm guilty by association. Because the night before, I wasn't saying nothing. I'm like telling Lil D, like, bro, just chill out. But I'm guilty by association. So now these females, they telling these dudes, like, yo, they're going to one of the dudes from last night that was dissing our hood. So out of respect, they like, yo, we got to step to these cats. So before it happened, I seen it coming. I'm telling Lil D, I mean, Lil uh, Darnell, Lil D, Lil Brother, like, bro, we about to get jumped. We about to get our we about to get we about to get our worlds rock like yeah he like not understanding what's going on so I'm trying to tell him what's going on with like real quick because we in the checkout line yeah so it's like the checkout line and it's like the entryway and the outway they waiting on us mm-hmm. so I'm like we can't avoid it we can't just stay in the store too long so he pissed off at me and I'm like bro. Don't get mad at me. You know, I'm, I'm the messenger. You blame your brother for this. Yeah. Oh yeah, your brother. So your brother. we we go out of the store, and I had my bike. So I'm pushing my. Uh, at, so now we're out of the store, and we used to hang out at this at this pool hall all the time, right? Because they had fifty cent pool tables. Mm-hmm. It's like the best thing ever, but they had good food. You know what I'm saying? There's an old head spot. You can shoot darks. You can get a root beer soda. Right. You can shoot darks and play pool for 50 cents. That's the spot. It was always there. Yeah. And then the owner was just like, I'm going to give these kids in the hood, you know, a, a safe spot to go to. Mm-hmm. And so I'm thinking in my head, like, we come out the flea market. Let's just walk towards the pool hall because I know the owner. If we can, if we can get inside the pool hall for they, for they bomb on us, we safe. Yeah. You know what I mean? That was the plan in my head. So as we got our snacks, we got our bags, I'm pushing my bike, and Darnell thinking, it, I left it out of the book, but Darnell like, bro, why are we going towards the pool hall? We live that way. I'm telling him, like, bro, just follow my lead. You know what I mean? Yeah. But these dudes were relentless, bro. They were on our head. And so uh, I'm pushing my bike, and they kicked my back wheel tire, and they was like, yo, just behind us, just mobbing off, talking all this stuff. And yeah. I'm like, yo... Like, bro, I'm not trying to be a punk neither. Yeah. And so I'm just like, I'm trying to keep quiet. We outnumber. It's only two of us versus like 12 of them. Mm-hmm. And I just knew it's a matter of time for one of these dudes swing on us. Yeah. Um, so from the moment they kicked my back tire to get my attention, and from me reacting, for turning around like, yo, why you kick the back of my bike? We didn't even make it to the pool hall, bro. <laughs> the pool hall... Seems so far away at this point. Because yep. they kicked my back tire. And from that moment, bro, they pounce on me. <laughs> they they pounce they pounce on me, bro. But they they let they let they let Darnell live. So he dips off and runs. And so when he runs, he leaves me. Yeah. I left that out of the book. You know, I didn't want to expose Darnell too much, but bro, you left me, bro. Okay. But uh <laughs> so I'm getting jumped. It's a flea market where so many adults go to, bro. They come in and out. They come yeah. in and out. These adults see this group of kids fighting, and now one tried to break it up, bro. Nope. So they they bombed on me until they felt as if I I, I had a, I had a beating good enough for them to leave, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, they smashed me, bro. But I would say 
when I wrote that chapter, I was also listening to uh, Good Kid, Mad City, and the song "Art of Peer Pressure." Yep. It just, it just, I felt like I was Kendrick in that verse. I was just like, this is everything Kendrick was talking about. Like it's, I had my own moment. It's the Art of Pressure. That's the one he was like, we made a left. Then yeah. Right. Oh yeah, yeah. And okay, he was okay. like, they in yeah. a group, they in a car. He with a group of homies and he knows he knows some bad thing that happened. And that's how I felt the night before, like in the Chinese spot. I'm telling Dornell, I mean I'm telling I'm telling Lil D, like, bro, like chill. Yeah. Because this is gonna backfire on us. We only live so many blocks away from each other. We're rivals. Yeah, when I was reading that that those couple pages, I was dying. Yeah, bro. Like, when you tell him to chill inside the Chinese store, yeah. I, I could just imagine that like he's sitting there like, yo, your dudes, and you sitting there like, yo, this is not good. Like, you, you and, I, and I know, <laughs> I, I knew, I knew Lil D had good intentions because he was a he was a ladies man, right? As a kid, yeah. he used to get all the females. Mm-hmm. So he was just like, yo, it's a group of females. I gotta talk to them. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it was it was it was weird how it played out, but it didn't play out in my favor at all. You know, Provado, a little ego, nah, you know, hey, you know, somebody got some, you know, got some feet put on them, you know. But hey, yeah, I got I got stumped out that day, bro. <laughs> oh man, that's one of the funniest stories. Yeah. All right, so I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna read you a quote from the book. Yeah. I'm gonna ask you about uh, a phrase in it. Okay. Urban America has become this infamous byproduct that has been designed by lawmakers mm-hmm. to redline the hood as a way to suffocate us. Oh, yeah. Uh, give us the definition of redline and, so red, and how it relates to that, 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 uh, that quote. All right. So the premise of the book, from beginning to the end, I'm constantly highlighting neighborhoods in St. Louis, streets I lived on, black parades that happened, parks where we shot basketball at. So I'm always talking about the neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. Right, the urban, the urban part of St. Louis, the north side. Um, so, what redlining is? Redlining is 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 a, is a thing within the construct of the banks, white-owned lawmakers, white planners that that specifically own or are in charge of local state governments to where they can say this part of the city, this 15-block radius, is where the most crime happens. Mm. This is where predominantly African Americans live at. African Americans live at. We do not want to sell to anybody in these neighborhoods. We do not want to buy within this block radius. So that's redlining. So they were redlining on a piece of paper. You know what I'm saying? This is where we don't want to buy yet. Telling banks if someone wants to come in and they come from a neighborhood that's that's within this redlining zone, do not give them a loan for a housing. Do not give them a loan for a small business. And if you do give them a loan, charge them so much interest to where they're paying us way more than what the property is even worth. Yeah. You know? And so this is a play on academia. Cause my degree in undergrad is sociology. My master's degree is in public policy. And it's by design. I'm not the guy getting a degree where I'm gonna get it and it's gonna sit on the shelf. No, I'm not. I'm gonna put it into action. And I'm really gonna combat the redlining and the urban planning of how our item how how Black neighborhoods are structured. Mm-hmm. Any city you go into, I'm quite sure somewhere in Norfolk, you can say, that's the black hood, this is the white hood, or this is where predominantly the crime happens at. Not, not to say black people commit crimes, but this is where police has heavy, heavy patrols at because African Americans live here. Yep. And they'll find a reason, they'll find a reason to pull you over. They'll find a reason, you know what I'm saying, to harass you. And so redlining mixed in to where I was going with the book and my degree in the world and what I want to do for the future. Mm-hmm. 
it's a play on words and how I want to use sociology, which is studying behavior, public policies, which is to shape lo local and government policies. Um, I want to merge the two to study why we can why why kids are acting out in school, mm -hmm. why are we having mass incarceration, why is the black people always victimized, and then what is the local policy saying about it? And so um, redlining and then the byproduct for uh, for it is that we always end up with the low end of the stick, bro. And it's always. by design. And it's by design. Yeah. It's by design. <clears throat> You said uh, in the book, I don't have the exact uh, page, okay. but you said uh, we need equity and not equality in yeah. the hood. What made you come to that conclusion? Bro, um, if you look on the website, so quick, quick shameless plug, martinjali.com, you see the book where you can purchase it at, but I made a book, I made a hat, and I designed it, and it says equity on it. A lot of times when you talk about progressive black people in America, whether you're watching CNN, Fox News, or watching Mark Lamont Hill, um, you will see them mention equality a lot, but not so much equity. Mm -hmm. What equality is to me is that, um, you know, it's like being tokenism, right? You ever been to the, you ever been the only black man in the, in the room oh, yeah. full of white people, yeah. right? And they'll be like, well, we got at least one black person in there. They may <laughs> not ever say it. That's equality, right? So I feel like during the racist times in America and um, after the Jim Crow era, a lot of companies will have a quota. We don't like black people. We don't want to hire you, but we got to hire some of y'all yeah. to meet that quota. That's equality. Yeah, we, we got a couple of them in here, but it's 500 employees. Yeah. Five are black. Yeah, real quick, That's the not, NFL yeah. is doing something similar to that right now. Yeah, bro. Uh, with the whole um, you know, African-American coaching problem. Yeah. Like they, Even, have, they have to interview a certain number amount of African-American uh, coaches. That's Even just, black quarterbacks. We used to never yeah. see black quarterbacks until like as of what? A couple of years ago. Yeah. And that's that's why I love Cam Newton so much. Mm -hmm. Like as a black quarterback, whether you went to you know to the Patriots and made a a, a commitment or not or a really impact, you're a black quarterback in the NFL, bro. That says a lot. Mm -hmm. You know? But um it, it back to my point though, like yeah. Equality, that's all equality is. It's not really doing it for the black people. Yeah, you hire a few of us because you have to. It's tokenism. Right. You know, it's like that white person, not to put race into it, but that white person who you know is racist, and they'd be like, well, I have black friends. Yeah. And they'd be like, one. It'd be like, one. It'd be and like, yo. And then that one is kind of... He'd be a cornball. He kind of he iffy himself. He'd be lame. Yeah, It'd yeah. be a lame black dude. Yeah. Um, and so... Um, that's that's why I really focused on saying why, that's why we need equity. Mm -hmm. Equity is saying we have to have you. We're giving you a piece. We're giving you a stake. We're giving you ownership of this company. Yeah. We don't we don't really want to just have one or two seats at the table. You know what I'm saying? We want to have a majority, mm -hmm. and it shouldn't matter if you're black or white or not. We want equity because we deserve it. You know, and that's why I said we need equity. You know what I'm saying? We want ownership. We we want we want some kickback behind who we are. We don't want we don't want the hemi downs. We don't want the, the 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 leftovers. That's not what we want no more, you know. And so that's why I said equity over equality. Both are good, but I feel like we need ownership. We need some we need some play into it. We need some so say. We need some say so in so many words, right? Yeah. Um, and that's what equity will provide for the black family and for the black boy in America. That's what I feel like. That's a fact. That's a yeah. fact. I can definitely agree with that. All right, let's talk about these affirmations. 
Yes. Uh, at the end of every paragraph, you drop a one to three sentence yes. inspirational quote called an affirmation. Uh, this this person was one of my favorite parts of the book. Yeah, because it's like that is how I got through it. Yeah, I went from affirmation to affirmation. Okay, okay. And, uh, that's how I that's how that's how I stayed on the track, and that's yeah. how I um paced myself on how much I'm going to read today. Right. So um, real quick. Uh, so where did you get the idea from, and and where did you get that last line from? Like like this black boy is using his mind. Yeah. To um. The power of his mind to uh, what did I say? To overcome to overcome adversity. Adversity. Yeah, yeah. There we go. Um. So at the end of every chapter is the affirmation, right? Mm-hmm. That's my chance to talk to the black boy. I'm like, yo, I see you. You know, you ever been in the mall or somewhere and you just walking and you see a black dude walking past you mm-hmm. and he give you that head nod? Like we know what that head nod means, right? It's like a salute, like I see you. Mm-hmm. Like that affirmation was a confirmation to tell the black boy. Like, you're bigger than what you're going through. At the affirmation, at the last of every affirmation, it says, um, the black boy using the power of his mind to overcome adversity. Yep. We're always going through adversity, no matter what it is in life. Whether it's a relationship, you know, dealing with the ills of the world, dealing with something that worked with the coworkers. You know, no matter what it is, we're all going through adversity, whether it's small or big in our lives, right? So I felt like the black boy, we don't get, we don't, we don't get enough pats on the back sometimes. So that was my chance at the end of every chapter to say, it's going to be all right. We're going to make it through. No matter what adversity you're going through, we're going to use the power of our mind to think outside of it, to think mentally, not so much physically. Because a lot of times we, 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 we react emotionally, mm-hmm. and those emotions sometimes transfer into a physical reaction, and we end up doing something that we regret. Right? We end up hurting somebody. Yeah. But now we're using the power of our minds to get past all of that thinking, right? Yep. And... um. Every affirmation is different, yep. but the last sentence says the, um, the black boy is using the power of his mind to overcome adversity. And so like, I literally freestyle every one of them, bro. And I just felt like this is what I wanted to be said to me as a black kid. Mm. So now I get to say it 14 times in the book right. just, just to confirm and to hound in and be like, I see you. You know what I mean? And you know, like the most dope part about the affirmations yeah, yeah. was that last line. Yeah. Because you know, you know, growing up, it may not be taught to you, but it's 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 subconsciously taught that the only way that you know a black kid is gonna become successful, become that one percent, or just become you know wealthy, rich, mm-hmm. however you want to put it. It's not going to be through the power of your mind. It's going to be the power of entertainment, the power of sports, the power of labor. Exactly. It's not told it's going to be, you know, he's using his mind to overcome adversity. So I thought that was dope. And then the fact that you kept reinforcing it. Yeah. You know, I can imagine a black boy reading it and it kind of, like, in a good way, brainwashing him saying, you can do more. Like, like, use your mind. You know, and that's, that's how I know people ain't read the book yet. You know, that's how the people who I really know haven't 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 really really read the book yet because um you're gonna get some out of it so you're gonna have yeah. to come back to me and say bro like yeah. I read this part in the book and it really hit me you know what I mean and so uh yo for y'all who bought the book like read the book like please definitely read the you're book. you're gonna get some out of it it's short too yeah you're gonna get some out of it it took me it took me like three weeks to read it but I really could have knocked it out in yeah in really days it's really 176 it. pages bro yeah and um it, it wasn't made to be intimidating but it, it, it can fit inside the palm of your hand you know so yeah not a long book at all okay 
Uh, let's get into a little bit, not too deep. But let's yeah. talk about uh, the military portion of the book. Oh, man. Uh, yeah, it got spicy a little bit. It got yeah. spicy. It, it got a little rocky for you, too. It did, bro. Uh, early on in your career, you caught a case. Uh, without yeah. going into too much detail, because people still need to read this book, briefly go over what that case was. And, um, yeah, just go over what the case was. Man, how could I make a long story short? Yeah, don't give him... So it's a life changing moment, bro. Yeah, I can't give them all of it. Yeah. But long story short, I was in a situation to where um I was in the wrong place at the wrong time in the military. Okay. Right? And it caused me to to, to catch a case in the army to where I got a case for gang assault, uh aggravated assault, home invasion. I believe I had seven charges, right? <laughs> In the military, went on to get court martialed, went on to lose rank, went on to got that put into my file, which hinders me from getting promoted in the army. Um, but still in all, here I am, still pushing through, um, <clears throat> having a chance to change the narrative. Mm. But my whole entire experience be, be behind me getting in trouble within the army, um, it shifted my whole life on how I think about things in my adult years, because it's happened at 21. And I still feel the effects of it now at 36 because it hinders me from doing certain things within the military. And I actually enjoy serving. Um, but it, it, it took a lot out of me. But now I have a whole different purpose of why I serve now because of that moment in time in the military. And also, too, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a firm believer with a divine reason that everything in life happens for a reason. Right. Okay. So me getting in trouble, it's the worst thing that happened to me. Right. But also the best thing that ever happened to me. Because when you read that chapter, just a snippet to give some context behind me getting in trouble. When I got to my unit, we were about to deploy on the 15-month deployment to Iraq. Right? So if I wouldn't have got in trouble, I would have been in Iraq, right? But me getting in trouble kept me from going to Iraq. Even though you, even, even though you did uh, ask to go still. I asked to go. I wanted to go. Yeah. But the, the, the reason I think God had a purpose for me, bro. Um, I didn't go to Iraq. I stayed behind. And when we left behind, they didn't leave behind many of us to stay. And um, <clears throat> the guy that was in charge, left in charge of our unit, allowed, I had just got married. They allowed our wives to come visit us. Uh -huh. And so my wife came for a weekend visit. She was going through her LPN class. We were 21-year-old kids, right? She's going through her LPN class, so she didn't have a lot of time to miss class. And so I bought her a weekend ticket. She flew up to New York for the weekend. And that weekend of her visiting me is when I conceived my son. Right? Mm -hmm. And so I had, the, I had the best thing in my life happen to me. I, I became a father nine months later. So I probably wouldn't have my son today, you know, if it wasn't for me getting in trouble. And so um, it's just how, it's, it's, it's your outlook on life. How do you look at it? You know, it's, okay. it, it plays on you. You know, um, I think... Me getting in trouble, was it worth my son? For me, it was. You know? So, yeah, man. I like that. Um, but that, that chapter, bro, is... Uh, those couple those couple chapters. Yeah, man. Spicy. I think that's one of the longest chapters as well, because I, I kind of narrate the whole perspective because... Um, you, you, you go deep, too. You go I deep done it on it. purpose because I never really had a chance to talk about it. Oh, a lot tell. of times in the military, people be like, yo, man, like, why aren't you at this rank yet? Why right. haven't you done this in your career yet? You know, it's something that's hindering me. Right. And it's hard to talk about at times. Not that I'm ashamed of it. It's just 
I don't really like talking about it, right? But this chance in the book, like I get a chance to to paint the whole entire picture. Oh, you painted. You know, it. so yeah, man, very important chapter um of the book for me, yeah, for sure. What was the the single most shocking thing that you learned about the military during that period of time you got in trouble? Man, loyalty, bro. Um loyalty by far. Loyalty and betrayal. Because people who I thought, you know, what the army, what the army prescribing is like, um, always be there, always be there for each other, right? Mm-hmm. We're always gonna be there for you. We're a family of one. Families come first. We're gonna take care of you, no matter what the situation may be. I didn't get a chance to see that, you know. I, I believed into it. I was I was brainwashing to believe in it throughout boot camp. Mm-hmm. Um, but the moment I got in trouble. And it, you know, the army's all about uniformity, right? You have to look alike, you gotta dress alike, you gotta be a part of something, you know. Not to say that we're all sheep because we get a chance to think outside the box, but they um they definitely tell us, tailor us into a way of thinking to where we all have this one track mind sometimes, right? Yeah. And um because of that, man, when somebody went outside the the that 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 parallel went outside that, that, that plan that the army has set forth, we don't know how to look at them. We look at them as being like scumbags of the earth and douchebags. Mm-hmm. So the moment I got in trouble, they looked at me as if like I felt like I wasn't a soldier no more. Damaged goods. That was the betrayal part, yeah. right? And not knowing like y'all feeding into the fire, like y'all, y'all feeding the beast right now. I'm gonna come out of this 10 times stronger. Mm-hmm. Um, but then I also felt this, this sense of loyalty from people who was understanding what was going through and believed in me. Cause like towards the end of that chapter, I talk about two people who like slowly became mentors in my life within the military who believed in me, regardless of them knowing what I went through. They were like, "I'm gonna give this guy a second and third chance," mm-hmm. and I didn't make them regret that chance at all, right? And so, um, I think I learned what true loyalty is, and I learned what you know fake love is in so many words, for sure. That's solid. That's yeah. solid. Hard, not hard lesson to learn, but everything happens for a reason, like you said. It right? is, man. That was guilty by association once again. Right. Like me getting in trouble. <laughs> if if I done what they said I did, if I really committed gang assault, if I really did a home invasion charge, like I would have took that on the chin and been like, yeah, I did that. Yeah. You know, I deserve the trouble I'm finna get into. But the you know the army didn't really give me a chance to That's plead crazy. my case. It's crazy. Yeah. All right, one last question. Yeah. All right, so the uh, the one thing that I haven't touched on yet uh-huh. uh, that you mentioned in the book briefly, but you did mention it, mm-hmm. was uh, your faith, you know, that you are Muslim. Yes. Uh, what are some of the positives mm-hmm. and what are some of the tribulations that come <clears throat> with being a Muslim soldier? A Muslim soldier? Let's start with the latter the latter half of that question, right? Um, I just mentioned that the uniform, the, 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 the army is all about uniformity, right? Mm-hmm. So we all got one uniform. Um, we all supposed to have this clean shaven image. You know, the moment you go out of that, it's kind of hard for anybody to think for themselves and be like, well, you know, maybe this person can still be a soldier, even though he thinks outside the confines of what we've been taught this, this, this entire time. Mm-hmm. With me being a Muslim soldier, it's, uh, it's not the majority faith in the military, you know. Um, I have a beard on my face, right? And I've done it on purpose. I don't need my beard to be a Muslim. Yeah. Like, it doesn't make me who I am, but I've done it on purpose because, you know, I got tired of shrinking myself to the perception of what people think I should be and how I should look. 
this beard is not going to make me do my job any less than what I already know it, right? It's not going to affect my job performance. It's not going to affect who I am in, in no way, shape, or form. Um, and so because of that, a lot of people do not understand that. But I also understand their logic because we're also in a war where we're bombing Islamic countries. Mm -hmm. Syria, Afghanistan, Iraq. We're still in Kuwait. We're in Qatar. We're in Saudi. We're in, you know, countries in Africa that has Islamic faith. So we have this perception. You know, you look at some of the army training, like, uh, you know, anti-terrorism one. We call it AT level one. And they depict military soldiers as being like these uh, upright citizens. And then they have this perception about terrorism, you know, connecting towards Islam. It's totally wrong, bro. It's a false premise. Um, and so because of that, I think soldiers have been not so much brainwashed, but being told to think a certain way about Islamic soldiers. They call them hajis. I'd have heard people say the word sand niggers, you know. Oh, wow. You know, and so I think I get a chance, me, to change the whole perception about how they see Islam, black Islam. You know, I'm 100% blickety black, 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 right? <laughs> my last name is Ali. I have a beard on my face. Um, I have done interfaith prayers and I have prayed in Arabic in the military confines in front of everybody. Um, I have been an advocate for Friday prayers for military soldiers, you know, and I think I'm progressive, and, but it changes the narrative um, for people to have this, this outlook on the Islamic faith. For one, Islamic faith to where you can see it being, being bigger than the Islamic faith to where it's only for Arab people. Mm -hmm. I think the second biggest Islamic population is African-Americans. I mean, African people, you know what I'm saying, outside the Arab faith. And so, like, it's, it's, I get a chance to be a pivot moment for people to think differently, bro. Um, my beard on my face. For the moment you see me, I get so many double looks. You know, people see me and they like, who is what? What this what this dude got going on? Yeah. People who know me from the past, some from when I changed my name from Johnson to Ali, on social media look at me differently now. Yeah. Um, not in a bad way, but like just standing for something. And um, man, my faith is everything for me, bro. Um, my faith has has given me a chance to look at the world from a whole different perspective. To see genuine love, to see love for all and hate for none. Uh, that's what Islam is about. It's not about hating nobody. It's not about bombing anybody. This faith is, a, is one of the most beautiful religions. When you study Prophet Muhammad, when you study, people had a perception we don't believe in Jesus. We believe in Jesus as a prophet. We also believe Jesus is coming back. You know, so to to intersect that with Christianity, which is the predominantly um, the popularity faith. You know, I, I feel like I have I get a chance to to be. Not so much of one uh, educational source. Um, I'm also a resource to be an open book to where they can come and ask me questions. I'm a, I'm I'm here as 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 a firsthand experience to be like, well, what is Islam about? And I can tell them, you know. And so I've done that in the past three and a half four years. Yeah, Martin Ali. Martin Ali, man. Martin Ali, man. Uh, go and get the book, The Last to Finish, The Black Boy Experience of Overcoming yes. Adversity. Yes. Um, uh, plug, uh, plug where they can find it at, where they can find you, where they can find just more yeah. uh, more of you. you know? So social media handles, if you if you type in Martin period Jabbar on any social media handles, you will find me. From Twitter to Instagram to my LinkedIn, you will find me. Um, 
to plug the website. If you type in martinjali.com, that's the website. You will see my website. You will see a quick bio. You can see where you can purchase the book and the format copy of the physical copies, ebook. You can see my merch. And you can also see my, my podcast I do, which is called The Last Call for Knowledge. And so it's a one-stop shop to find me um, and to find out who, what I'm doing, what I got going on, and what I'm about. And um, that's pretty much me in a nutshell, bro. Yeah. So once again, the website is martinjali.com. And then social media handles, martin.jabbar. On any social media handles, you'll find me. My man, appreciate the time. No doubt, bro. Appreciate you. 55 because if you was in the civilian world making 55 that 25 30 gonna be gone on housing insurance and food so you're in the same place you would be at but you got your own spot doing less work making more money are you feeling me they got me on the vibe culture baby podcast